0: You're in the information age, but facts are in short supply. Reject the noise, ask bold questions, and pursue the truth with FBI whistleblowers
1: and founding suspendables, Garrett O'Boyle and Steve Friend.
0: This is the American Radicals Podcast.
2: It is the American Radicals Podcast. Today, Saturday, January 27th, 2024. It's high noon on the Eastern Coast, folks. Thanks for being with us on Rumble. The show is rumble.com slash amradpod. American Radicals Podcast is with you every Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday at noon Eastern time. We are grateful to have you with us on Saturday. Saturday is always our best day. It's our biggest day, guys. Uh, you you all have a lot of spare time on your Saturday afternoons. Uh, so we're happy to, to you know keep you company when you're in line at the grocery store or raking leaves or shoveling snow. If you like my buddy Garrett, who we'll bring on right now to say hi on Saturday. And then we will bring on our special guest, Garrett.
1: GOB Actual, how are you doing today, my friend? I am alive and well. Before the show, I was trying to catch up on orders from the-dismantables.com. Get your merch. I'm wearing a hat, but those are gone. So thank you for all of you who bought a hat. But uh, I almost got caught up, but not quite. So I'm eager for the show, though. We have a great guest, but also eager to get back to your orders and ship them out, hopefully, by Monday. All right. Excellent.
2: Um, and we do want to guess. We want to get right to him. I talked to him before. He said he's scheduled his whole day around us. We're really honored. This is going to be Dr. J. Michael Waller. I call him Dr. J. I don't know if he's a doctor, but I, I think like I just want to call him Dr. J. He is a senior analyst for strategy at the Center for Security Policy. He's an expert on cultural Marxism that's going on in the CIA and more specifically to our purposes, the FBI. And he's come out with this great book. I read it all, guys it's fantastic. It's called Big Intel. Make sure to get your copy of it if you want to know the history behind what we're experiencing now and how it has the mask has been fully pulled, pulled off. He's a, at a nondescript, undisclosed location in the wilderness in a cabin right now. I'm happy to bring on Mr. Mister J. Michael Waller. Can I call you Dr. J, by the way? Whatever
0: you want. I can't <laughs> play basketball, though.
2: <laughs> hey, well, I'm. we're glad to have you, man. Um, you know, you were... Uh, you, you you actually came down to Florida. Uh, when you were in the process of writing this book, I uh, had a chance to sit down with you for an extend, extended period of time and give me some of the information. And you were one of the few guys, journalists, uh, who were interested in finding out what is really going on and just not at a surface level, not at the three-minute snippet on cable news and saying, well, well it's just a change at to the top is all we need, and everything will be returned. And uh, having read this book, you go way back, and I've got lots of questions with you, including some of the things about your own experiences, which I think are really awesome. Um, but for the purposes that I want to start with and really get your opinion on, because you've studied this thing for so long, we all kind of like, we read animal farm in school and the whole, like from each according to his needs, each according to his means, uh, philosophy behind the, uh, communist manifesto. And then we all kind of were in second grade when there was that one dirtbag kid who didn't do any work on the group project and he got the same grade and we kind of understood that communism just fails for that purpose. Uh, but in this country, because we don't have like the the struggle, the economic struggle between the classes like they have in Europe where there's a proletariat versus, and, the pro, and the bourgeoisie where they can have them into conflict, America is quite different. And that's where the cultural Marxism angle has infiltrated. Can you sort of explain, just give us kind of a, a 30,000 foot view of the history of this and, and what it actually is and, and beyond just the terms, so we can sound, kind of all sound a little bit smarter when we have these discussions with folks?
0: Well, Sure. Yeah. If you go to that, you know, wonderful, trustworthy oracle Wikipedia, you'll see that the cultural Marxism page has been changed to cultural Marxism conspiracy theory page. So that kind of tells you where we're at, where cultural Marxism is no longer a left-wing phenomenon. It's now a right-wing figment of crazy people's imagination. But it really began before Karl Marx even wrote the Communist Manifesto or Das Kapital. If you go back to the original Karl Marx, of 1843 he wasn't to use the the toiling masses of the worker workers proletariat against the wealthy bourgeoisie model it was not an economic warfare model it was a cultural warfare model so the enemy was the society and culture so everything to do with greco-roman foundations of western civilization to the judeo-christian traditions and all the morals that went with it, and all those the values that went with it, and family values and religion, all those things he he said this all has to be destroyed. So that was his struggle, his class struggle. Then was the was the uh, the people who were being oppressed by all of these terrible things, by parents, by 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 morals, by society. They all have to be destroyed, and so. That didn't really catch on and there was a big wave of revolutions in europe in 1848 and the culture of the communist manifesto comes out and then the whole economic mobilization of the working class during the industrial revolution with poorly paid workers in these sweatshops they would become the next revolutionaries so the Marx we know is economic the real one is cultural marxism
2: okay and and we've been hearing that you know by folks such as yourself talking about it um I think I've heard it kind of described for, for the lay person as Marxism is sort of like water that trickles in and finds the cracks in the stone and then there's a freeze. And then the, when when inevitably water freezes, it kind of grows and then that causes the stone to shatter. And that's how they've infiltrated us, not necessarily from the economic standpoint. And th- and that's what we're seeing. like we, we call it woke now. It's this push for diversity, equity, inclusion, and now what's it? Access, which D-E-I-A. I think they're going to switch it around and actually call it IDEA because they got to constantly re- rebrand that whack-a-mole for us to accept it and change their terminology. Uh, but as it pertains to why well, we want to talk to you, and obviously from our background being federal agents with the FBI, uh, and you have a background in national security studies and intelligence, From your, can you fill folks in on a little bit, your, your background, where you went to school and, and what your aspirations were before you found yourself over with the center for security policy, because reading this book, which is called big Intel, you can get it on Amazon, you get it on audible, the audio version. I actually will play a clip a little later here, folks. Uh, there's a, there's a really great part that I I, want to make sure that we give you some access, a snippet of, uh, and, uh, you actually were endeavoring to do CIA work, but were cautioned otherwise by the uh, recently uh, deceased Angelo Code Villa. Can you tell us a little bit about
0: that? Oh, among others. Yeah, it was, it was in, um, well, in 1980, I was a college freshman at George Washington University. And so Jimmy Carter's last days in office, Reagan comes in and, you know, I'm right in the middle of it now as an intern from a small state working for my US Senator. So if you're from a small state, it's easy to work for your, your Senator. You can just be a nobody and they're happy to get free help. So I got to meet a whole lot of people really quickly, really early. And so in so doing that, got involved in student journalism. And then the somebody I knew from the Senate office who had gone to the White House, they took me under their wing as sort of a, um, a youth activist leader who was supporting Reagan's strategy to roll back and, and, and get rid of Soviet communism. So it was a really exciting time, and in the course of all of that, I had uh, thought, really wanted to join the CIA, and Bill Casey, who was a, who was the director then, wanted to revive it. Now, Casey had been in the Office of Strategic Services, OSS, during World War II, and so he had this old, this network of really old-school OSS men going around scouting for young talent. Well, I got involved in that and ended up going to Central America being paid with walking around money and cash from this old guy from the OSS and then later from somebody else. And years later, I realized <coughs> I was doing this on Bill Casey's dime. He was funding people <laughs> like me to do this so that he would not have to testify to Congress because that was his own private business and not, uh, he wasn't using tax dollars for this kind of activity. So you and, were a hip pocket source for the director of the CIA. That's right. But, but I cool. got my cryptonym from Casey in church. I was told, go to St. Matthew's Cathedral, five o'clock vigil mass on Saturday, sit in the back left pew and don't move until somebody comes and talks to you. I had no idea what it was because it was just before I was going down with the Contras. And this old guy from the OSS named Jim, whose name I never knew his real name, uh, I thought he was just trying to get me to church one last time before I went down and did something stupid in Central America. So, and then there's, there's Bill Casey, a few, you know, what 10, 15 pews in front of me. And Sure enough, afterward, somebody told me to stand here and then Casey shuffles up when, you know, the masses ended, go in peace, there's the exit, him. And then he shuffles up and he mumbled something to me that I didn't understand. So the guy with him sort of barked it at me in a very commanding way that I could never forget. And that was the, the last I ever saw of the man. Um, so it was a it was a captain's name, Capitan Luque. And so I go down to Honduras uh, and I'm getting, you know, I didn't couldn't explain why this, you know, American kid with kind of longish hair with no reason for entering the country because Honduras ha- has immigration laws that they respect. And uh and they did then. So they kind of held me, and then I finally thought I'd pull a rang. I said, I want to speak to Capitan Luke, Captain Luke. And they looked around and a guy comes out and and well, I didn't know till 30 years later that was my kryptonym. <laughs> that was the name I was supposed to use to get hitched up with the Contras down there. Oh. So uh so it's it's this sort of a forest gump kind of way of going into uh getting into involved in all this stuff and then it lasted for a few years uh infiltrating soviet front organizations and and disrupting them and messing up some soviet active measures campaigns in ways that the normal cia didn't do anymore
2: that's a cool story and it's sort of the the way that bill casey is was sort of the hoover-esque figure where he it, there actually was people would recognize him versus now when Christopher Ray, I think other than people who work on the inside of the FBI, the sort of fawn all over him at the FBI, he's just kind of, I've compared him to a man who, if you walk past him, he's just so uh, unimportant looking that you figure, well, he probably coaches like youth, eight girls, soccer to an under 500 record. There's just nothing (laughs) compelling about him, but talking to Bill Casey, even that once would be
1: kind of cool. Go ahead, Garrett. I've I've compared uh, Chris Ray to milk and toast combined.
0: Nice. (laughs) Is he real? is Is he just weak and being led around by these woke lunatics, or or is he just so swampy that he'll do anything that he's told? or is he actually leading it?
2: That's a great question. And I was actually going to ask for your opinion on it because oh. uh, you know in in this book, in Big Intel, you go into the the various leadership uh, throughout the FBI and the CIA's history. And I cannot get a read on him ideologically. He's said himself, Christopher Wray, current director of the FBI, he says he has oversight of the FBI, which is he's very specifically inserting that as opposed to leadership or even management. And there's definitely a figurehead uh, figurehead role that there that plays there. He goes and testifies in front of Congress and basically says, like, I I can't comment on that. But I've sort of just fallen back to the fact that he he made like nine million dollars the year before. So he was just this really rich attorney and they inserted him. And I, I don't know what his political ideology is. If he's just kind of living it up, living the billionaire lifestyle, because he gave up the the financial ass- uh, end of things. And maybe he can delude himself into, well, this is a sacrifice I'm making for public service if, There's no nefarious intent, but I don't see how there's any way in the world that he could not see what's going on right now and just be so bubble wrapped when the evidence is presented so clearly. And he falls back on these things where he'll say like, well, I know we're doing a really good job because our applicants have never been hired. And my response to that is if you owned a restaurant and your customer said, I got food poisoning from you and you said, well, that can't be a problem because I have lots of waiters then you just have a fundamental misunderstanding of what the mission is and and is the mission for him do you think like at christopher ray because I, I think james comey was definitely a believer is christopher ray in that line of thinking where yes he thinks that the cultural marxism being ushered into these institutions is a an objectively good thing
0: yeah well the, the way i've found him to be was he's he's more of a swamp creature so he's your typical lawyer washington lawyer and of course Washington lawyers don't do a lot of private business. All of their business is one way or another related to the government. Even if it's with private clients, they're still making their living off the government. So you become a millionaire lawyer. You you do the revolving door in and out of government with a high Justice Department position in the Bush administration, become pals with people like Chris Christie, but you have no distinguished career of your own and you really show no real leadership skills. You're just there. He's kind of like the Joe Biden of the FBI. (laughs)
2: <laughs> he, he can articulate a sentence, but but that's, that's roughly it. It's not necessarily going to be related to what we're talking about at hand. Got it.
0: Right. And he can read <laughs> off his cards and give his slogans, but he can't answer questions because he really doesn't seem to know what's happening in the Bureau. So when you're in the swamp like that, you're going to go along with whatever the prevailing tendencies are. And if it's DEI, LGBTQP, whatever else they add onto it, then, then you're just going to go along with it and be sold on it, and you want to leave the FBI victorious because all that big sacrifice you've made um, for public service you're going to parlay into bigger law contracts, bigger law partnerships, and even board uh, uh, board positions and um, uh, contracting opportunities and so forth after this. So it's always to be parlayed into a business
2: and. You opted uh, instead of going through the public service route, I guess, uh, you know, as as others did. You opted to not enter into the CIA or, or pursue that necessary uh, that that career track, and you've you've stayed on the outside and, and studied the issues, and I think provide valuable insight at Center for Security Policy, and and as you've written all these different these journalist pieces, and you were doing things obviously as a hip pocket source for the former director of the CIA. Um, but to your interactions with Angelo Codvilla, who I do think it was a incredible thinker, an incredible thinker and incredible guy, uh, you had a relationship with him. And in your book, Big Intel, he talked about uh, early on when you were considering that route that he cautioned you against it. And uh, can you get into why he would do that? Because having known you and then, um, and I think Garrett will probably dig on the, the different types of intelligence, but but first and foremost, um, <clears throat> You elected not to go to the CIA or even try uh, because of the uh, encouragement of the, the, the duly departed Angelo Codvilla.
0: Yeah. This was one of the things that the opportunities you get to network with people. So I was a young Senate staffer, a nobody at the time, but I was interested in all of this. So I would go to different receptions and staff events to meet other people, one of whom was this notorious man named Angelo he didn't have a last name. You didn't need to say a last name because there was only one Angelo on Capitol Hill. Even senators were afraid of him. They thought, I've got to meet this guy. So he was working on the Senate Intelligence Committee staff. Turns out he was also, um, he, he was supposed to have oversight of the CIA on the Senate Intelligence Committee staff, but it turns out he was he was Bill Casey's guy <laughs> on the Senate Intelligence Committee staff. Not that the, the CIA has their own people on the intelligence committee staff. That's not proper, but it's done. But in this case, it was more of a political thing. Casey was saying, I want to make sure that the Senate intelligence committee supports what we're trying to do to roll back the Soviets. So Angelo was his man and he, he was brilliant. And uh, so he he took an interest in in, you know, people who were wanting to get involved in these types of careers. And I mentioned to him, I'd really like to join the CIA. And he said, You will hate it, and it will (laughs) hate you. When I I read that, what's that?
1: I was gonna say when I read that part. uh, Full disclosure: I haven't finished your book yet, but I was able to read some of it, and uh, so far. But when I when I got to that part, I thought, on one hand, I wish somebody in my life said the same thing about me going to the FBI, but I also it kind of saddened me because this was 1983, if I remember correctly. Uh, when this happened yeah and so it, this is 1983 I, mean, I wasn't even born yet i wasn't even born until 1986 and i guess in my experience i i've gotten to this point of complete disillusion now with with these institutions but now reading your book it's like wow the i should have had this disillusion pretty much coming straight out of the womb uh but I, you know i bought the i bought the lie the I, i'm sure it's part operation mockingbird part hollywood part you know, government telling us how great the CIA and FBI and institutions like that are, but it sounds like they've been basically just, you know, swamp, swamp, you know, just stuck in the swamp for decades and decades and decades.
0: Yeah. I mean, well, look, with with any institution, we can't demand perfection or else we'll just drive ourselves into complete demoralization. So all our institutions are messed up somehow. And, and it's just, All of us do things that we wish we didn't do. So when, but when you have places that are so old and they're they they they're so unaccountable, or there's so little attention paid to them, or they've got such a brand that nobody dares tarnish it. Like, what's the worst crime you can commit as an FBI agent, right?
2: Embarrassing the FBI.
0: Yeah. So it's all a big cover (laughs) up.
1: That firsthand. (laughs)
0: Yeah. So, so why would you be covering things up? Why not try to be the best you can be? admit you have challenges and say, hey, we need a hand on this. People are going to forgive you for that. They're not going to forgive you for covering up. So for myself, I went in with eyes wide open. I'm in Washington, D.C. There's the J. Edgar Hoover building, just a 15-minute walk from my dormitory. I grew up watching FBI with Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. with the FBI and the credits because the leadership of the Bureau would, would screen each TV episode before it was broadcast. So I mean, uh, you know, so I grew up with this brand that these are the G-men, which meant something back then. Now, G—you can't say G-men anymore because it's sexist and, and you know <laughs> violent. So, so, so you—so that's that was idealized. And J. Edgar Hoover was great at the publicity side of this. He saw the communists infiltrating Hollywood in the 1930s. He said, "We've got to get the Bureau into Hollywood as well," and he got a. a Ton of great coverage. That's what G-Men was created, you know, as part of Hollywood branding, going after um, gangsters and, but earlier, going after communists and anarchists and, and radical socialists. And it was it was a, a neat role that the bureau was playing, but it was still a brand. And if you look at the bureau throughout its history, it's our it's our chief counterintelligence agency, and it's done a terrible job.
2: The worst uh, intelligence failure in the country was arguably when Jennifer Moore from her spot as the special agent in charge of counterintelligence in Washington field office on January 6, 2021, and she had no background in intelligence. Her background was in human resources. So she was promoted two times after that, as the <laughs> FBI is wont to do. And then similarly, there's this push that we're finding now for within the house to find whistleblowers and they're comparing them to insider threats. So for those who don't know, an insider threat would be someone like Robert Hansen who was the the mole who was giving sensitive information out to Russia for years on end and embarrassed the bureau so so badly that they, they once he was caught they, they sort of crushed it under the rug until a movie was made about it and they I think they probably tried to paint it in the most uh, the most positive light as they could. Uh, Mike, can you tell us about your friend Bob?
0: My friend Bob, well, he he was an interesting guy, a really intense guy, um, and a really knowledgeable guy. So I went to, um, did my doctoral dissertation on the KGB during and after the Soviet collapse. And I was, so I was in the Kremlin the day the Soviet Union was abolished when Boris Yeltsin seceded Russia from the USSR. I was working with Russian activists at the time and doing my PhD research on the on the on uh, what was happening to the KGB. So I had Russian friends who were pillaging KGB offices. And then I got to go into Lubyanka in this very strange period in history. And then over the next couple of years, was talking to KGB officials who had been working against the United States, but never been to the United States because of the sensitivity of their jobs. And they were fascinated to talk to somebody who at least was trying to, you know, was trying to, get answers to things, and knew the structures, and knew the procedures, and they couldn't BS me as they could, say, a naive journalist or something. I'm sure they'd BS me on a few things, but it was neat. Anyway, so the book was published in in, uh, 1994, and the FBI showed no interest. Now, I've been bringing back documents of material and so forth from inside KGB offices and the, the Soviet Communist Party General Secretary's vault. No one from the FBI was interested in this book until one day, I got connected with a senior counterintelligence agent named Bob. He wanted to know all about it. He was really interested. He asked a ton of very well-informed questions down to the bureaucratic uh, intricacies of the KGB and what were the personalities of certain KGB generals who I might have met and so forth. Super interested. So I got to build up a a, a friendship with him over the years and uh, went to his house a bunch of times. His wife... uh, Bonnie, you know, cooked nice big lasagna dinners, and I I knew his whole family. And um, one day we were at, uh, our boys went to the same school as Director Louis Free's son, and we were at a Christmas party. And Bob said, "Uh, there's Louis. (laughs) He doesn't know anything about CI. Sort of gratuitous comment like that. And he liked to say that about people, how they don't know anything about CI. okay i said well i'd like to talk to him would you introduce me he said no go up and introduce yourself he's a good guy okay fine so i go up to the buffet table and he's standing on the opposite side and we're the only ones there and i said hey director it's nice to see you and i introduced myself and he just ignored me and he was you know looking down into the macaroni and cheese or whatever (laughs) and i said sir and he wouldn't even acknowledge me and then he turned his back to me and walked away wow so i went i went to uh back to bob i said he's kind of a jerk he wouldn't even say hi i mean it's, it's a christmas party for our sons and he said yeah well as louis uh, uh he doesn't know anything about ci <laughs> I, I didn't think anything of it so so then 3 weeks later i found out louis free did know something about ci because that was bob hansen <laughs> and he was arrested that day so uh, so yeah free actually wrote about that incident in his memoir and he's got his own recollections where he he said he thought he he saw hansen there he knew he was the guy was going to get arrested and his son who was right next to him would never have a father again and but he tried not to let it show and he hoped that nobody nobody noticed but he did seem pretty uptight
1: (laughs) when uh when hansen was taken into custody were you ever approached by the fbi and questioned in regards to your relationship with him or anything like that
0: well this is kind of interesting yes in, in short but i went to them first so I had been a journalist with the magazine published by the Washington times and wrote a lot on intelligence type issues. And of course you go and you bounce ideas off people in government and people who have clearances, they don't reveal stuff to you or at least they shouldn't, but you just want to bounce ideas off to make sure you're on the right track or get a different insight. So I talked to Bob about certain things. Now I didn't put anything he told me into my articles, but he, he gave me some serious stuff, but he had a, he back then there was Netscape was the main server, and he had an encrypted Netscape br- browser rather. He had an encrypted Netscape browser on his server in his house behind his fireplace.
1: Hmm, interesting.
0: And he was emailing me stuff, and I was living abroad at the time. At this particular time, he was emailing me stuff that was wasn't March classified, but I could tell it was highly classified just by the nature of the material. And then he was telling me things when I'd see him person-to-person person that I knew was of an extremely, extremely sensitive nature. And uh, so I I couldn't go straight to the Bureau as a journalist because there's a shield law that protects you. It's kind of like a whistleblower law, where it's, but it works. It's um, First Amendment protections for journalists so that if you have a source in the government, you can't be compelled to reveal that source. But if you go is- to the FBI and you volunteer something, then you've broken the membrane of that shield law and they can compel you to talk to them or the justice department can subpoena you for the rest of your life this is why it's a sim
1: yeah Garrett, you have you ever worked a sim case you want to explain what that is oh yeah a sim is a sensitive investigative matter so in the fbi there's a handful of things that would fall into that category it would be media it would be a politician or somebody running for office it could be like a local celebrity or even a national celebrity that, you know, lives in your area of operation. But yeah, that would be designated as a sim. And then there, there's like just more restrictions on the case, uh, inside the FBI's systems. I don't know how long that's been in place, but, uh, I was wondering if, if you know that this, uh, shield law, do you know if that was, uh, kind of, uh, sprouted out of, um, What was the case? New York Times, U.S. versus New York Times in the late 70s when they were trying to get. um, Oh, I forget who the journalist was, but it was basically classified information coming out of Vietnam. Supreme Court ruled in favor of the New York Times because the government was trying to force them to reveal who their source was. Yeah. Or.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that was that was I believe that was the same case. It was case law. So that protects it was a First Amendment case, meaning if the government could compel you to reveal your sources, that's a threat to free speech because you will not be able to report on government wrongdoing and therefore no accountability over government wrongdoing uh, if you could be compelled to say as a journalist who your sources were.
1: it's It's interesting now I guess in thinking of Steve and I and my uh, experience and and others like you know right before Steve and I testified, even before that, well, when, when Steve first was known in the media, his name was was leaked to the press. And it's just interesting now how some aspects of the of the press corps, uh, you know, are adamantly they're, they're just they're not, I guess, the the journalistic aspect of their profession, they it seems like many don't really care about just the truth. They, they have an agenda. And then you get somebody like Steve or me just getting smeared left and right uh, when our names get released, you know, against our will. Oftentimes I know that was the case for me after I was deposed last February, but it's just interesting how some of that stuff plays out these days.
0: And they could not smear you if someone from the FBI was not breaking federal law by doxing you.
1: (laughs) How about that? (laughs) I mean, uh, that just is that it's kind of like salt in the wound for me because The reason I was suspended in the first place was because someone made an allegation. I don't know who that person is. I don't know where it stands other than the latest is that a a new whistleblower came out and said, yeah, the FBI knew that you didn't uh, actually leak anything to the media, but someone made an allegation that I did. And then it's like, well, people have been leaking stuff about us to the media and there's no witch hunt for them to be like, Hey, why are you breaking policy and potentially law yourself and leaking information about these guys but oh man
2: yeah uh yeah. we definitely we want we got to get into what's actually going on with all the uh the different folks on the inside the the good you know the, the people we keep hearing about the good men and women of the fbi which i, I have my own opinions about you know, what's your oath of office demands of you and and what your financial obligations are uh, compared to that and i want to touch on that but before i do that i want to make sure we uh we do our, our, our ad, our, our sponsor for the show. Uh, we we were gone for one of the shows this week. I had to pre-record, so I did not get that in. And I wanna make sure I acknowledge the show's only sponsor today, True Earth. Guys, trueearth.co. You don't need the, the M, trueearth.co. Go there. Uh, this is an American company. This is a unique sponsor to the American Rad- Radicals podcast. You can use the promo code that is only for this audience, amrad.co. 24 to get to get healthy in 2024. That's why they want to track this. They have some great products there. If you have your own garden, if you want to uh, go into the pharmacy spelled with an F and take some of the, the supplements that are there, they gave me some of those. I've kept that regimen up this entire new year. So, uh, almost a month into it at this point, guys, and I'm feeling really well as a result of that. A lot of the inflammation, uh, Downstream effects of that I experienced from my long distance running. Uh, they have subsided significantly. And then I made sure to hit up the lion's mane today. Uh, because I wanted to double dose on it because we are talking to a really smart guy and Lion's Mane is for cognition. There's been studies that show that. So take advantage of the AMRAD 24 promotion code to get 10% off. And if you get order over $80, you actually get free shipping. Uh, And you can do all that at trueearth.co, the OG sponsor of the American Radicals podcast. So that being said, um, to start this conversation, I think off about what's going on in the FBI, um, I, there was a snippet it's in chapter 19 of your book, Mike, and I, uh, I have the audio audio version of it up. It's about two minutes long. I'd like to play it. It's it's the end of the chapter. It's, it sets up the next part. Um, uh, and I think that this is probably one of my favorite portions of your book. Uh, and then shamelessly chapter 21 has a lot of me quotes in it. So I think that's also my favorite, but, <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is uh chapter 19. Um, uh, we'll give this a play here. One second. The good professionals inside the bureaucracy become demoralized. Some of the best younger ones will quit early. Others will keep their heads down and try to ride it out. More will go along to get along, but without much enthusiasm. And those further along in their careers, eyeing retirement, will dejectedly do their jobs until they can end their careers with full benefits. And after retirement? Many hope to move on to lucrative post-retirement careers in government contracting or big tech. A few become so disgusted that they cut ties and walk away from what they view as the whole sordid business. Some keep their criticism subdued, restricting it to trusted friends from the community, not wanting to tarnish the brand of their former agency or risk ostracism, hoping beyond hope for a miraculous return to the good old days of upright purpose and fighting crime. All right. I think that's a that's that's a good little portion there we can get into here, Mike. Um, and I know that Garrett and I uh, can can back up anything that we would you were describing there. But uh, having heard that and, and good audio, audible voice, I like that guy. He's done a few of the books I like, by the way. Um, what was your experience? You talked to me, you talked to Kyle, I talked to some others that I guess remained anonymous. Um, the 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 old guard, the the OG, or the the Hooverite almost agents class and then the new agent class and the people that are true believers in what's going on and then the people that just wanted to do the job and they're just overwhelmed it there's a problem from top to bottom uh can you just dig into that for us a little bit
0: well i was thinking you guys personally when i wrote that part uh Anyway, it it was, thank
1: uh, you. Yeah, well, I actually you, you have Written it, the
0: book. So. What's that?
1: I said you nailed it. I mean, <laughs> as I was listening to that, I was like, "Yep, yep, 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 <laughs> yep, yep." That's that's exactly right.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I know people in each category, and have for years. So specific people and groups of people that I was thinking of in describing each thing, even the dejectedly part of it, um, and the, and of course the ones who do well in contracting or seek to do well. In fact, it was funny the last time I saw Robert Hanson was 10 days before his arrest. And he said he was really excited. Like I'd never seen him before because usually he tried to dominate a conversation and he was, he was kind of a quirky guy, but this time he was like a kid. He was so excited. I just got noticed. I got transferred back to headquarters. He said, I said, great. What are you going to do? He said, I don't know, but if you're transferring me back, I would love to do some more computer work there. I said, why? He says, well, because I, I wrote the computer software for the FBI's accounting system. And, uh, and it's not on my CV at all. And if I can get that in, I can become a, a contractor afterward. And, and you know, with my FBI and computing skills combined. So even Hansen was looking at a contracting <laughs> career after his retirement. Wow. Yeah. So so really this is what happens when, when an agency becomes a swamp. And when there is group think and collective think, and there is there is rewards for going along with whatever wrongdoing is happening. Because you can retire, keep your clearances, and then get into extremely lucrative government contracting. So the incentive is there for some. Just I just want to, you know, and some also say, if I quit, some wacko is going to take my place, and I can't let that happen. So, Steve, when I say there are still good people in the FBI, and then you're like, I can almost feel you cussing in your <laughs> tweets. Uh, there really are. They're just not strong like you guys are to come out and do the right thing, but they're still good so so they're there, you know, the last guy standing, some of them feel, and and some some rainbow lunatic is going to take their place. So th- there's that, but then there's really the greedy ones who are just hey, how can I how can I make a lot of money once I'm off this with my own gig? <laughs> so when you swampify a politicized law enforcement agency that's become or returned to being a domestic intelligence agency with police powers, you swampify that to get rich off it, then you've got a real dangerous formula for the future of the country.
2: And I, I mean, to, to, to talk about the good men and women of, of the FBI that I, I just I hate that phrase entirely <laughs> um, But uh, to give even the maximum amount of grace here. I think there's a structural problem even because it's any bureaucracy uh, we compare it to, oh, you got to climb the, the rungs on the ladder if you want to promote. Right. And I think that's sort of a misnomer. It's it's a pyramid because as you get closer to the top, it's a smaller group of your peers towards the very tippy top of it, there's only really a a few people that are running the FBI for all intents and purposes. And those are the people that are, I think, politically captured all too often. And then the, the structural problem for me is as you go down to the bottom of the pyramid, and that's the rank and file, because the bureaucracy is so large they can compartmentalize your responsibility to such a small thing that even uh, unless you're willing to step back and look at the entire mosaic and the, the mission that's going on or it, in question the, the morality of it or the uh, the, the, the constitutionality of what's, what a particular operation might be. You can just delude yourself in that one small responsibility. And I my own experience, and I cited today, today, happy Holocaust Memo- Remembrance Day for, for all of you out there. Uh, the FBI wanted to make sure that their press team on, on X put that out there. And my response is, my assistant special agent in charge, Colt Markovsky, actually sat me down and told me that I had to just follow orders and that this is the agency that is now saying we have to remember because never again is a real thing. And that day that I had a problem with, they said, your only job is to drive someone from the point where we're going to arrest him and you drive him to court. And unless you look at the whole thing as a standpoint of this could be a violation, then you, you might say, well, I'm just Uber. That's, that's nothing wrong with that.
1: Yeah, I can, I can do that part and that's okay. Um, it's, you know, we've talked about it before the, the, the person driving the train in Germany, like, Hey, I'm not, you know, turning the gas on in the gas chamber, but I'm just driving the train. And it makes me think of, um, I have the book on the back of, uh, behind me here. I forget the name of it. It's by a guy called Erwin Lutzer. And he wrote a book, uh, about, uh, it's like seven lessons we can learn, uh, from Nazi Germany. And in that book, he, he tells a story about, uh, a German parishioner in an American church, she ended up um, immigrating here uh, after the war. And she she talked about how in her village, the train would would pass through. And they used to always hear the screams coming from the train, and they knew exactly where the train was going and what was happening. And anytime the train was coming or stopping in her village, uh, everybody would gather in the church and just sing hymns as loud as they could. And she talked about how uh it's really just shameful that none of them did the right thing. They just tried to mask what was what was wrong. And I know people say, oh, it's hyperbolic for you to talk about or to compare it to Nazi Germany. And I my response to that is well then it's hyperbolic for the FBI to send us on that field trip because it is a very impactful journey through that through the museum, the Holocaust Memorial Museum. And the whole point of it is to remember the bitter past of what humans can do to one another when they simply just follow orders like the Reserve Police Battalion 101 did in Poland under Nazi order. And it's, I don't know, it's just disheartening to me. I do appreciate what you said, though, Mike, about uh, the the people in the FBI who say, hey, you know, if I leave, they're going to they're going to fill my shoes with 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 someone with a Marxist or whatever. And I'm glad you said that because it reminded me of, of a time where I was a different person (laughs) before this whole suspension and everything. But I used to tell my colleagues that on my squad that I would quit and I would just go back to being a cop or whatever um, something else. But I know that they would fill my, my desk with a legitimate Brown shirt. If I did, nonetheless, you know, that they were able to purge me anyways, and probably fill, fill my spot with, with someone like that, who's who's going to just follow the orders and, and not critically think and not actually have rigid adherence to the constitution and what their oath was and what their duties are to our society uh, as law enforcement officers. Uh, but, you know, we still talk to people inside the agency and I struggle like Steve does with the whole misnomer of the good men and women in the FBI. My The most recent example comes from a case from 2021 where the FBI raided a bunch of safety deposit boxes and seized everything in them. Well, a court finally has overturned that and said this is a massive Fourth Amendment violation. And I say not one person in, involved with that case said, hey, uh, there's some constitutional issues with doing this. They all just went along with it like it was OK. And that might seem minor like, well, OK, Garrett, that's that's you know people's belongings in a safety deposit box. That's not carting them off on a train. And I say, okay, well, let's go back through history again and, and look at 1930s Germany and what law enforcement was like then. And by the middle of the thirties, you had to swear allegiance to the Nazi party and be a Nazi member to be a a law enforcement officer there. These things don't happen overnight is what I'm saying. And I don't know, I just feel like I'm just going on a tangent now, but, um, I kind of struggle with some of that stuff, but also kind of reminisce to a time where I thought similarly to those people who, who are still in the role that I once was in.
0: Yeah. And things happen rather quickly in the Nazi period. You know, Hitler was only in power a dozen years, but imagine something like creeping Gramscian cultural Marxism where to, to come out and say just a few years ago that Marxism has penetrated the FBI and the CIA's whole entire operating system it would have been crazy talk, right? But now that you can look and you can go in and you can see what's happening and you can find the drivers of this and you can trace it back a century to when this started as a Soviet operation against Weimar Germany, you can trace the exact individuals and the exact organizations and the places when the baton was passed from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next, until it became a presidential executive order. And then (coughs) fiat's coming down from the FBI director himself. And the ODNI. So it's it's taken it's been such a slow motion revolution that as Steve said, it's like water coming in and freezing and opening up cracks, and you don't really notice it until it's too late. That it's already happened now. And it's not just replacing bad leaders with not bad leaders, it's it's come up now through the grassroots. If you look at the nonsensical recruitment stuff they're having and the, the training. Programs that they're having with the it's not enough even just to keep your head down mind your own business be kind to all your colleagues and 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 understand that the society is changing around you you're, you're like Winston Smith in the Ministry of Truth where it's no longer enough just to comply you must believe that two and two is five
2: yeah I looked even today I saw that there was the, the the most woke social media arm for the FBI who is the side note the FBI was bragging about his social media team yesterday on social media so enjoy that one but the FBI jobs Twitter page is the most woke one of all of them and they were talking about you can join our ranks and work towards a more to make things a more just world and my response to that is there's only justice and injustice there's no gray area between them and implying that you can make progress towards more justice means you're going to put your thumb if not your entire arm on the scale the 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 whole idea of the government's involvement in anything pertaining to a justice system is just the fair process follow the fair process it's very Clearly spelled out for you, and then I have my day in court, and that's really not up to you. The win and loss just shouldn't matter to you. The victory is in following the process. But if you are implying that you can work towards a more just world, it means that you're going to manipulate that process, and that is not your job. And I think that there's a that, that is a fundamental shift in thinking. And and along those lines, and I'm happy to let you comment on that one, Mike, if you want. Uh, but I also want to insert this to you because reading the book and, and the history of marxists in the early 1900s and all the way up today what was striking to me was how the people who were the original purveyors of it who were bringing it to pass through the frankfurt school they were true believers in it they lived the lifestyle they they were having like swinger parties and and triplets threpl- and odd lifestyles and untraditional, and they were living the radical lives like a street communist would. And today we sort of have like street communists that are out there chanting nonstop and and trying to insert themselves into things. And then you have like the elite communists who, for all intents and purposes, they live a relatively conservative traditional life like wife, kids, because that's really the, the path to having a successful life individually. Um, and the contrast between the leadership of the old times versus now is there a, a a difference in the type of person who is calling the shots than originally?
0: Yeah, yeah, very much so. Because you had originally, and, and for all its faults, we, we, but originally the the Bureau of Investigation first it had a lot of problems. It had a lot of drunken special agents. It had some criminal <laughs> special agents. So it was the early early Bureau of Investigation. So when when this young J. Edgar Hoover came in to run the Bureau of Investigation. He cleaned it out. He fired a quarter of all the special agents. But the way he came in, he came in not as a lawman, even though he was a, he was a, you know, he went to law school. He came in to fight subversives. He came in to fight Marxists, communists, radical socialists, anarchists, to identify the foreigners, round them up and send them back to Russia. That was his job for the Justice Department. So imagine taking over this new, but pretty small federal law enforcement agency. It only had a few hundred agents. At a time when government is now expanding, when FDR comes in with the New Deal, lots more federal laws, lots more federal laws to enforce, therefore a much greater FBI. So Hoover was pushing for this, but he went from a subversive hunter to fight individuals and organizations purposely here to overthrow our constitution to a lawman. Now, what do you have? You have so many laws that it's almost impossible to not break a law anymore because no one can even know know, what all the laws are, but you have it politicized with the very same, same ideology that J. Edgar Hoover was put in there to combat. And he started warning about this in 1920. So for decades, he was saying, they're infiltrating our schools. They're infiltrating our universities, Hollywood. Uh, the politics church media literature arts arts everything else is we have to be careful about this because this is how they're going to they cannot conquer our country but they can infiltrate us and destroy us from within
2: do you think that if you could reincarnate jay Edgar hoover and install him back into heading the fbi in, in, as it presently is and with the tools that it has do you think that that sort of mentality i mean, I mean, he was a, he was an interesting guy, I mean, good, bad, e- evil, innocent, I mean, it's sort of a mixed bag, just like all of us are. Um, do you think that J. Edgar Hoover overall was a, a objectively a good thing, uh, a good person? And was, was he on the right mission course?
0: Well, defending the country against these foreign ideologies coming in to destroy us was a great mission. He was the right man for the job. But if you're in the same position for 48 years, you know, you're going to get long in the tooth. You're going to make a huge amount of mistakes and, and there's going to be no control over you. But really, there were no, there were few federal laws uh, to control the FBI then. There were, there were, you didn't have a Civil Rights Act until 1965. So you, you there were tools that he didn't have to limit FBI's powers, yet he did limit them on his own. And in fact, some presidents said, I think the, the, it was the Kennedys or Johnson, let's keep Hoover on, Kennedy, let's keep Hoover on because we don't know who's going to replace him and what he's going to do with all the assets the FBI has.
2: The devil, you know.
0: And then President Johnson said, I'd rather keep Edgar in the tent pissing out than out of the tent pissing in. So there was that common sense approach too. So you had, he had America first. If you you would never, you read his speeches. He gave a lot of speeches and his congressional testimony and his books and articles. He always had America first. In fact, he talked about preserving the Christian culture of America. They're to destroy our Christian culture. He always talked about founding traditions. He wasn't against other religions. He was just saying that, you know, we were created as a Christian culture, or we could say Judeo-Christian. It was still accurate, but but not a Marxist or secular or anti-religious culture. So he was very steeped in that. He he was as a as a human being he was, he was a really hard worker. He was devoted. He was like a warrior monk. So you hear these stories about what a degenerate he was there. I found no evidence of that at all. Got hmm. a lot of accounts, second and third hand accounts of it, vengeful accounts. But the two people, uh, both from the left who have written about the FBI, most exhaustively, Tim Weiner and uh, Beverly Gage, Weiner's a journalist, Gage is a scholar, magnificent critical books on Hoover and the FBI and they looked into these allegations and found there's nothing to the cross-dressing story there's nothing to the the closet homosexual story he he was he lived to care for his ailing mother until he was 43 years old it is it, it,
1: interesting I I mentioned uh Tim Weiner's book uh enemies last Saturday and uh it's I think that book's magnificent and w- when I started reading yours it was similar for me i was like oh similar tones here but uh i will say about your book it it, just the way you articulate things or tell tell your story it it really it really uh, grabs the reader in which which i think that as a writer that's just a great tip of the hat at least for me i hope you take that as a compliment but um with hoover it's uh that's interesting so with hearing you talk about uh his mission to eradicate communists and, and Marxists and people who are trying, who were trying to destroy our country from within, who in a lot of ways seems like they've finally succeeded or or are succeeding and are about to plant their LGBTQ plus IA flag at the top of the hill. Um, but that just the way uh, he attacked that mission, combined with setting himself aside uh, to care for his mother, I think it tells a lot about his his character, in a way, and I think it was in, in *Enemies*, where where Tim Weiner was saying that uh, Hoover realized himself that it, if he picked the wrong woman, it would be disastrous for him.
0: Yeah, he couldn't be a good FBI director and a good husband at the same time, or he couldn't be, uh, or 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 having the wrong woman would would destroy him as an FBI director and would destroy the bureau because it, it centered on him. So yeah, so he was so I mean really if he was really a a, a gay, the gay FBI director, you would have Chris Ray with 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 Hoover icons wrapped in rainbow colors wearing a you know a pink and baby blue you know cravat or something he would be a, a role model for the bureau today if these stories were really true but he was fighting Marxism so they they really want to do him in.
2: So that, that brings us to towards the, uh, the end of your book, you have uh, a lot of ways that you spell out, uh, potential w- solutions to solve CIA problems and FBI problems. I don't want you to have to give away the whole final chapters of the book, Mike. Um, can you just give us some, some, maybe some ideas that you want to put out into the ecosystem here that people can have, start having conversations about, because I've come up with some ideas myself and tried to start conversations with people and we all yeah, the 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 problem I have from especially elected people is that they cannot envision a America existing post FBI uh, yeah. uh, when it's less than a hundred years old anyway. And like you point out, it, it was started by a charter of a half page memo. Uh, what well, what do you think would be some really good things that we could throw at our federal officials or even our state officials? Because I've I got ideas on that as well.
0: Yeah. Well, first, I, I sympathize with people who are so frustrated and demoralized. They say, "Let's just defund the whole FBI and just get rid of it." I, I understand that, but we need a counterintelligence service. In fact, we need a good one, which we don't have. We need some sort of enforcement of federal, you know, uh, federal laws. You need, you know, so there, are, there are things you, you need a, a the criminal lab that the FBI has, it's a world-class, you know, laboratory, all that other stuff, but you, you, the, so when you say get rid of the FBI, or when I would, I propose this as well, it means to break it up into different pieces where you have those useful elements, get rid of the elements of the Bureau that don't perform functions beneficial to society and just, and therefore abolish the positions of all those personnel, pull their clearances, and then they'll have to go find other jobs. You you take the better parts of it and transfer it to those parts to existing agencies. So I would say move the FBI Academy over to the U.S. Marshals, you move the criminal branch of the bureau to the Marshals, you, uh, move the counterintelligence and national security functions to other entities. You don't need an ATF and an FBI that's both enforcing firearms laws. So as much as the ATF itself deserves to be part of American history, take all the bureau's firearms functions, move it to ATF, and then. Chew on ATF later on. So one, one, one step at a time. So that would be the prescription for it. And you do it in an orderly way. And this can be done by presidential executive order, because as you just pointed out, the FBI was created by a memorandum by an attorney general. So you don't need an act of Congress to do that. So you have an incoming president with already with the executive orders written before he's even elected. So it goes, boom, transition time, Let's move on this now. Let's put a trusted team together now to handle this and then write up laws to put a lot of these executive orders into law so that they can push things through Congress to to make these executive orders permanent. That's what we need right now. And I think it can be done, but everyone is so devoted to this brand because the FBI is just propagandizing itself as the be-all and end-all. And thankfully, having the experience with Angelo codavila He said, "Don't be dazzled by these brands. It's Hmm. it's just a bureaucracy." Bud Light was a brand, right? So let's get rid of it. So so the FBI has really become the Bud Light of law enforcement.
2: (laughs) Oh yeah, you call it the it's a trans intelligence agency now at this point (laughs) because it's not not gotten the chop. It still has the gun and the badge. It's an it's a police force, but it has intelligence agency with policing powers. That's not really uh, an American tradition. That's like an East German tradition. What I'm curious about your thoughts on this one thing that I put out. And I, I, I thought I maybe I, I neglected to send it to you. And this is a few months back. I put out this op-ed. Uh, the The notion of disarming the FBI or and basically all federal agencies, with the exception of a U.S. Marshal Service, and making them unarmed investigative agencies, and then through appropriations saying you must partner with local. Sheriff's offices, police departments, we federally deputize some of their personnel like we currently do, just more so. And that's why I would retain a U.S. Marshal Service and effectively heighten and elevate the responsibility of a sheriff then because he's the chief law enforcement official in a particular county because he can direct the resources. And if he believes that the federal government's out of hand, the feds can't knock on your door with a SWAT team. They won't have one. He'll just say his people won't affect that arrest.
0: Yeah, Sheriffs don't know the powers that they already have. You know, few sheriffs really do. So your idea to empower the sheriffs is great. And then to bring the FBI back to its roots, because for many, many years, the FBI, uh, the special agents were unarmed. And the FBI had no tactical units until after Hoover died. They didn't didn't need them.
1: Didn't, uh, I forget. I have a timeline of this stuff, but I I forget sometimes. Uh, I want to say it was like the late 20s or early 30s before they finally were armed um and then it was in the late 70s i think when they first started having their their initial swat teams and and yeah i guess like government typically does it just it's been an outgrowth over all the decades i know the fbi likes to say they started in 1908 but really it wasn't until 1935 that they were the the actual fbi but it it does seem like they just have like I said, about with most of these bureaucratic institutions that they exist to perpetuate themselves and they continue to glob on to say, okay, how can we get more money? Like, you know, Steve and I, we've talked about this before, like, and I, I experienced it in the military. I experienced it in the FBI at the end or coming up to the end of the fiscal year. It's like, oh, we have all this money we need to spend like all throughout the year. It's, it's like, oh no, we, we can't afford to buy you this equipment or to do that type of operation or whatever. But then at the end of the year, it's like, oh, we got to spend the money so we can get more next year. And it's like, I don't think it's supposed to work that way.
0: Right. And the mission creep that goes along with it.
2: Mission creep is going to be the death or at least expose the the, the significant problems on the national security side of the House or the FBI. Uh, I, I, this is sort of fresh in my mind. I've been in Tennessee all week doing speaking engagements. On, and this is a major portion of what I talk about, how the evolution for since 9-11, where we started with the homegrown violent extremists and the domestic violent extremists, and now the agave, the anti-government, anti-authority violent extremists. They're a bureaucracy in lo- in search of work for itself to justify its own existence, that they've now become a self-licking ice cream cone. And the the, the bucket of funds that are being offered to them uh, is so deep. And because we've inversed the way that we look at performance and its quantity over quality, they're, they're juking the stats and saying look you gave us 11 billion last year look how much good we did with it Why don't you give us 12 or 13 and our representatives who theoretically have the power of the person are supposed to be representing us are up there and they're not really digging into the details which I was glad to convert you Mike on on Twitter because all I basically do is read like the second paragraph of every press release that the FBI puts out to find out that they're just taking local cases and taking credit for them um, and now I've, I've, I've recruited you into that that my my little cult that I've started and maybe we can start banging the drum on that and getting some public awareness to realize that it's all about the local police. We're about empowering the guys that are the boots on the ground, not necessarily the bureaucrats that are in Washington, DC. I want to wrap it up here for you, Mike. Um, Pitch your book here. It's called Big Intel. uh, And then you're also over at uh, the Center for Strategic or for for Security Policy. Um, Can you you tell us what you're doing over there? And then we'll we'll put a a lid on this one for today. and, And thank you very much for being here.
0: Sure, well, at the Center for security policy we're a we're a private foundation. We accept no government funds, and, and we are we look at national security from a lot of different uh, perspectives. So our biggest projects right now are uh, my own is uh, what to do with the FBI and the CIA, have another few colleagues who do training for sheriffs around the country uh, to help empower them and to remind them that they are the eyes and ears of federal authorities who will abuse their authority and then take all the credit for the work that the local cops have done. So, so, to make sheriffs aware of the powers that they have, and we do a lot more stuff, but if you want to find more about us, we're at securefreedom.org.
2: Make sure you check it out, guys. There are links to all of, uh, of Mike's, uh, articles and pieces that are there too. Uh, and, and make sure that you pick up a copy of big Intel. It's got a lot of history in there and it's got a lot of what's currently going on. I I read it. It took. It wasn't. You know, wasn't uh, like reading War and Peace. It took me a week of just comfortable reading. When I was out in Tennessee this week, whenever I had some downtime, I made sure that uh, that I picked it up and and knocked it out in a week. So it's entertaining. You can also get the audio version, which uh, if you are like me, you could you could do that when you're running 12 miles a day on one almond. Uh, We want to make sure we thank everybody today. Thank you for joining the American Radicals podcast, Garrett. Uh you can find him online. Garrett, you gotta open up your uh your Twitter account soon because I'm getting tired of being at G-O-B actual for Garrett, uh, myself. I'm getting real tired
1: of <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I gotta talk to my attorneys. I don't get it anymore. Like, what's the point?
2: <laughs> no, no, I mean come on, you're you're public facing. You're yeah. you're the face of the franchise. You can't just be me. We need a nice bearded man in for the yeah. suspendables. I can't just be like the, the good Roman senator who's clean shaven. Um, <laughs> And thanks to to Mike. He's J Michael Waller. At J Michael Waller is his handle on on Twitter. And I'm at Real Steve Friend. Everybody, enjoy your day today. Enjoy it, and we will see you back on the American Radicals podcast on Rumble on Tuesday at noontime. And until then, have a blessed day.
0: You've been listening to the voice of the suspendables on the American Radicals podcast. Follow us on rumble.com slash amradpod. the way.